Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, do you know what your employees are really doing when they're working from home? A new survey finds an alarming number may be misrepresenting your company, or worse. Also this morning in our ongoing Keeping the Faith series, seeing God's faithfulness even in the shadow of grief, a Tennessee pastor shares his story of navigating loss and continuing the legacy of his late wife. War, natural disasters, and secrets from the past always make for a great story. Author Linda Cunningham talks about her new novel, Early Thursday. And we have details on this year's Community Read event and other March programs from the Findlay Hancock County Public Library. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast is calling for partly sunny skies today and a high of 42. Partly cloudy tonight, a low of 25. Somebody's using the name and logo of the Ohio Department of Transportation to try and scam people. ODOT says suspicious emails are going around that appear to be from ODOT requesting people update their driver license information. ODOT points out that it does not issue driver licenses in Ohio. And ODOT said the Ohio BMV is not requesting that information either. Get more on that scam on our website. Governor DeWine is considering allowing 30% capacity at some outdoor stadiums for teams like the Indians, Reds, and Columbus Crew. But he cautions that that could all change in a month if a variant of the coronavirus becomes dominant. Our best medical information is that it very well could become the dominant could become dominant in Ohio by the latter part of March. And if that happens, the governor says that will change whether fans will be allowed into stadiums. Get more on our website. Forecasters expect conditions on Lake Erie to become even more dangerous this week due to shifting ice. Thaw will continue on the lake as temperatures will remain above freezing through the end of the month. Meteorologists say the ice isn't safe even if you see people on it. Last weekend, 10 people had to be rescued from ice that had pulled away from the shore in Cleveland. The Finley Trojans' Luke Montgomery has received an offer from Ohio State to play football for the Buckeyes. This is what I've been working for. I mean, just to get that offer, I mean, it was pretty, it's crazy. I didn't expect it at all. Luke, a two-way lineman, tells WFIN that wherever he decides to play college ball, he's going to show up ready to compete. I want to be able to go into a program and hopefully contribute right out of the gate, and I'm really I'm really blessed to have this opportunity, obviously, so I'm going to make the most out of it. Luke's only a sophomore, so he has two more seasons left with the Trojans, and he said he thinks the next uh, next season will be a big one for them. Get more of our conversation with Luke on our website. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. I'm Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. 24 days until spring. Not that we're counting or anything. 24 days until spring. By the way, it is going to feel almost spring-like today. Outside of the uh, the wind, which may still have a bit of a bite to it, uh, it says here temperatures today uh, getting up into the upper 40s. We'll see if that comes to fruition, but that is what the forecasters are saying. Upper 40s may be pushing 50 degrees. So... Enjoy it while it lasts, because it's going to get colder tomorrow and uh, then probably on uh, Friday as well. But the weekend also going to be very mild. So 
24 days until spring. In addition to it being World Bartender Day today, it is also Inconvenience Yourself Day, which is about acknowledging others. It says you're putting other people first and having a positive effect on their lives. That doesn't necessarily mean inconveniencing yourself to do so, but the day, it says, helps people become more attentive to others and uh, more cognizant of the way our actions impact someone else. It's not about giving oneself uh, some inconvenience necessarily, but it may be, but giving oneself some inconvenience so that the day will be less inconvenient for others. So, inconvenience yourself day to day, if you are so inclined. Uh, National Tortilla Chip Day, and it is National Trading Card Day today as well. So, there you go. Some of the uh, reasons to celebrate on this 24th day of February. This is uh, kind of interesting. Will 2021 be the year that we get back to dating? Pandemic has put dating on the back burner for many people, but OkCupid has officially predicted that 2021 will be a big year for dating, and specifically, August 1st will be the biggest year, uh, biggest day for dating this year. August 1st, 2021 the biggest day for dating. Um, now, they made this prediction actually in the UK. This is based on on a prediction out of the UK because Prime Minister Boris Johnson there pledged to offer all adults in Great Britain the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by July 31st. That's assuming the government will be able to stick to its desired timeline, of course, as it is single people in England still have to wait three more months before household mixing rules are relaxed. <laughs> household mixing rules uh, there in England. Okay, Cupid's data shows that 42% of those polled said that they would cancel a date with someone who didn't want to take the vaccine and that 86% say they're looking forward to in-person dates again. But So they're saying August 1st, 2021, the biggest day for dating this year. That is based out of this uh, information coming out of the UK. And that's uh, significant because in the US, I don't think a lot of people really care one way or the other. They just want to get back out there. So that's going to put it uh, globally over the top. We'll see. Um, this is definitely one of the most uh, buzzworthy stories of the day and uh, folks will be buzzing about this on social media i'm sure once the story starts spreading on online and you know it will this is one of those stories that is destined to go viral um you know that there has been debate over the past year uh with all of these social justice protests and so on debate about what exactly it means when activists say defund the police what is it is that literal is that figurative is that what does that mean defund the police well now the mayor of ithaca new york is taking that meeting to its most expansive its most literal definition the mayor of ithaca new york is set to propose a plan to abolish that city's police force this is a report in gq 
says the police force would be replaced with a new civilian-led agency to be called the Department of Community Solutions and Public Safety. The Department of Community Solutions and Public Safety. How very woke of them. Under the proposal, service calls in the city of some 30,000 people will be evaluated to determine whether an armed or unarmed response is needed or if it should be outsourced to a different public entity. Uh, the report says the main goal of Mayor Svante Myrick's plan is to reduce the number of encounters between armed police officers and members of the public. He tells the reporter, everyone wants the police to perform better when they show up. Everyone wants that. What this plan is saying is that we also want the police to show up less. And that's a radical thing for a city and a mayor to do. So we'll see if this actually goes anywhere, if the city of Ithaca actually does disband its police force and create this new agency. But it is definitely going to get some discussion. This is going to spark some discussion on social media, I can imagine, once this story uh, hits Facebook. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting. And it will be interesting to see if uh, that actually comes to pass. Things are getting back to normal in Texas after the state was hit by a rare winter storm last week. But now, this is the latest conspiracy theory. TikTok is full of videos, exploding with videos, spreading a false claim that the snow in Texas last week was fake. And the whole thing was engineered by the government. Yes, that's right. It was a deep state conspiracy. Many of the videos show someone burning a snowfall, uh, a snowball. So somebody, as this supposedly is the proof, they gather up the snow, make it into a snowball, and then hold it uh, above a lighter. And then they note that when the flame hits the snow, the snow does not melt. So it must be fake. The, in reality, snow always reacts this way. If you were to go out and in a snowball, hold a, a lighter underneath it, uh, it would not melt um, through a process called sublimation. The solid snow turns into a gas when it's heated that much that quickly. So, not a surprise. But anyway, since the storm hit last week, fake snow was a top-related search query on TikTok while another false claim alleging Bill Gates played a role in this fake snow ranked very high among Texas snow-related Google searches. <laughs> like most conspiracy theories, this one is not new. The claim also circulated back in January of 2014 when the southern U.S. had a rare snowstorm. So, uh, that is the latest conspiracy theory. <laughs> traction online. Look out for that. You need a... A little, another, a bit of a laugh. And how about this? I saw this on the on the newswire. Uh, on the one hand, it makes you smile. On the other hand, I just have to say, I think I hate this guy. A Florida man used the lucky numbers inside his fortune cookie to play the Powerball, and wouldn't you know it, he won five hundred thousand dollars. This fortune cookie definitely lived up to its name. Uh, he's from Florida, but he was in North Carolina at the time, and uh, he 
uh, picked up a an order of Chinese food, and in his fortune cookie, it listed your lucky numbers, right? You've seen these in fortune cookies. Well, he figured, what the heck, I'll play it in the Powerball, and sure enough, $500,000. He was a winner. He now says he plans to move to North Carolina permanently, and... Uh, he said his, uh, all of his dreams come true. He is now referring to the shrimp and rice meal that he picked up as a good investment. <laughs> I guess in his case it was. And he uh, plans to buy a house in uh, North Carolina and make a uh, permanent move. On the one hand, you got to be happy. You shake your head. You smile. you got to be happy for the guy. On the other hand, I, I think I know who I hate today. You know? <laughs> there, there you go. I'm, I'm so jealous. I just hate you. I don't even know this person, and I hate him. Uh, that is uh, some of the uh, most buzzworthy story news, uh, the most buzzworthy news, the most interesting things, the first things you need to know on this Wednesday morning. You can help recognize outstanding teachers in Findlay and Hancock County. Nominate a current teacher who made a difference in your life for the Findlay Rotary Club's Golden Apple Awards. Place your nomination online at findlayrotary.org. Nomination deadline is April 2nd. Please promote the work, dedication, and achievements of all teachers by nominating an excellent teacher for the Golden Apple Awards. This message provided by WFIN. Well, you know, we've talked quite a bit about how the pandemic has launched this huge work-at-home movement that will likely outlast the pandemic itself. Many workers finding that they enjoy working from home, at least some of the time, without the distractions of the conventional office, but also without the continued oversight of the boss. And that could be a problem because it seems some workers, deliberately or not, are misrepresenting their companies or acting in ways that may run counter to company ethos or even, in extreme cases, engaging in illegal activity. Neil Wu Becker is chief marketing officer for Behavox, and uh, you recently did some research on this riskier side of the work-at-home phenomenon. Just how common is this? Yeah, we sure did, and we were essentially at our year anniversary when the pandemic started affecting right. people's lives. Uh, you've been pent up in the house for so long in many cases to where a lot of people can feel disenfranchised or just, just a bit uh, grumpy about things, if you will. Mm, sure. So we conducted a study with 3,000 white-collar workers in the United States, as well as Canada and the United Kingdom. And we wanted to find out what depths or degree of misconduct is occurring within companies that have remote workforces at the moment for whatever reason, stress, disenfranchisement, or just plain malicious reasons, what we found was startling. Uh, we are seeing sobering rates of illegal misconduct like drugs, corporate sabotage, corporate espionage, hmm. theft of intellectual property. We're seeing inappropriate conduct as well, or misconduct like racism or bullying, uh, sexual harassment as well. For example, let me put numbers behind it. 8% of the respondents in the study said they've witnessed sexual harassment and sexist jokes while working from home proving that you don't have to be in the office to hurt someone, frankly. Yeah. And then 7% of respondents have witnessed racism while working, all at a time when you've got the, the Me Too movement that had been going on for right. a while, sure. as well as a bunch of social unrest all last year. It's just not a good look. And, and are there certain industries where you find this is more common than others, or is it pretty much across the board? I would just consider it across the board. Uh, the study we conducted is not relegated to any one industry. Gotcha. Um, it, it was so. relegated to any for-profit enterprise. 
And you're going to find this in any type of business, unfortunately, whether you're working from home or in the office. Right? Yeah. And, and and how much of this is deliberate on the part of unscrupulous workers and how much of it is unintentional? I mean, in the end, it may not really matter because either way, it could expose a company to uh, potentially big trouble. But do, did you get a sense of, of how much is actually deliberate and how much uh, of it is uh, cases where people aren't realizing what they are doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's both, obviously. And, and, and for the record, I don't want to be a complete ambulance chaser here. Most of us are decent human beings uh, as, as coworkers as well. But you get enough bad apples to spoil the whole orchard, obviously. And, and that's what this study was finding. Um, the answer is yes. We're seeing when you're at home, you don't have your boss leaning over your shoulder, looking at what you're doing. You're not sitting next to someone in the office um, collegially. You, you could be sitting all by yourself in some cases on your couch or in your kitchen. So you tend to become a little looser, especially over time in your professional standards. I mean, think about it. If you have the monotony of a year of literally pretty much staying out of the office, you're probably going to change in a way you don't even realize in terms of your professional standards. So the likelihood starts to increase gradually, as you can imagine, for misconduct. And what we are seeing is uh, are, is a select group. It could range anywhere from say eight to 15 or 16%, depending on the infraction we're seeing or measuring where people are willingly, intentionally, conscientiously, purposely breaking policies or doing things to harm other people or illegal misconduct. Like I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So those numbers are pretty high when you juxtapose it against yeah. a company that say has a thousand people or 100,000 people or 10,000 sure. people. That's yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, the ex- That's enough people to bring it down. Yeah, right? the exposure could be uh, could be huge. Now, all of that said, your point here is not that allowing people to work from home is an inherently bad idea or something you should not embrace. I mean, data shows that in many cases, people are happier and more productive even uh, with this kind of flexibility. What your company does is create that oversight that you need in order to have peace of mind that business is being conducted the right way. That's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, let's be let's be uh, honest about it. When when the pandemic is declared over, uh, let's just say that it's pretty much in the rearview mirror, which should hopefully be happening soon this year. Uh, there will be a hybrid. The prediction that we and many other businesses are making, at least white collar businesses are making around the world, not just in the U.S is that there will be a hybrid work model where some people will go back to the office and others who actually, to your point, want to stay at home will be okay because essentially they've proven it for the past year that they can stay productive. Mm-hmm. In some cases, maybe even more once you remove commutes and things like that. Right. So um, there will be a hybrid model. And this type of oversight you're talking about is a very delicate word because I think what's, what, 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 what needs to happen here is to enable this hybrid work model the companies and their employees have to have a better understanding and visibility into what risk occurs from a misconduct standpoint and how to weed out the toxicity and the bad apples from your corporate culture. And that requires visibility. So what companies do not have right now is visibility into the depths of their ocean. If you drain the ocean to see how many fish there were, um, same analogy applies here. If you drain the ocean, how much misconduct would you really have in your organization today, let alone this year? You just don't know. You can guess, but you don't know. So the tools that we provide at Behavox provide that visibility by helping our uh, customers aggregate all of the communications channels they use. Could be even like a phone call like you and me having right now um, to be able to look for rogue behavior through voice, 
and text keywords that are inflammatory. So if you call me a name, it could be picked up. Um, if I say a bad word or, or disparage a customer, it can be picked up to where you can identify this in your own house as a company and address that misbehavior before it becomes a public spectacle, which yeah. is obviously what you don't want for revenue, brand, corporate right. culture, and all that. Yeah, even if we're not talking about illegal activity that could open your company to a lawsuit or, or criminal charges, you don't want a longtime loyal customer angrily calling you up and saying, I am never doing business with you again if this is the way you're going to run your company. Um, so there's the, there's exactly the, com- right. yeah, there's the commercial. I want to get, make sure that we get that in, uh, on top of that, what are some other tips that you would give to employers who want to allow their workers the flexibility that they are asking for, but don't want to take any chances? Are there some other best practices that can minimize that risk or that exposure? There are. And, and if, if you think of a circle and you cut it in the middle, like one half of the five versus the other. One is just the simple, classic human-to-human interaction that we've all grown up with in our careers. And the other one is technological, like I was describing before, the ability to aggregate, analyze, and then take action on misconduct you're seeing in your communications data. Now, one of the, one of the things I would say that is probably happening in most companies is if you were to literally measure the amount of interaction um, a, col- a colleague of yours has with uh, his or her manager or executive, how much more or less is that from when they were in the office, rhetorically speaking? Because I would argue there's many instances where the communication levels are just about the same or less than when you were in the office, when frankly, it needs to be more. So a quick uh, um, suggestion that's very reparable and easy is communicate more, period. Just communicate more. And, and, and not just over email, but on phone and making sure the one-on-ones you have with your employees are such that you're also testing the the um, emotional state and the uh, morale of your companies and your teams so that you can gauge, are they going to be playing for my company or are they going to be, uh, are they on the loose end, right? And that, that, that can't be done without proper communication. But if you pair that with uh, the, communi- uh, the technology approaches that vendors now can provide, such as Behavox, uh, we use artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is going to find things that your human brain can't even find in terms of potential uh, problems within your, your corporate culture, that's the, that's the secret formula. So the combination of technology paired with just good old-fashioned communication and proper corporate policies that we should have been having ever since we entered the workforce. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a real eye-opener for a lot of uh, companies. Interesting stuff talking about potential misbehavior among work-at-home employees. Neil Wu Becker, again, Chief Marketing Officer for Behavox, who uh, did the uh, research here that we're talking about. And where can folks learn more about it? I, I'm assuming you have all of this posted at your website, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, what you and I have talked about is, is really just a, a smidget of the overall substance of the report that we've seen. Um, people can download this report for free. So I, I uh, recommend that anyone, especially those who are executives or in HR organizations or management positions, go to our website at www.behavox.com. That's B-E-H-A-V-O-X.com. And they can download the report and learn more about not just what the problems are, but how to solve them. And we have that link up at our webpage at goodmornings.net. You want to check that out online. Once again, just to reiterate, it's not saying that uh, working from home is a bad thing or that your employees are are bad people or horrible human beings. Quite the opposite. In many cases, uh, a lot of this is unintended. Uh, it's just a natural thing 
that uh, after a time we sort of uh, let our guard down a little bit, if you will, and maybe we're a little less careful with the things that we say, the things that we do, and the way we uh, talk with clients, coworkers, and so on and so forth. Here's another example of that. Uh, research out of the University of Ottawa finds that uh, the emojis you use when you are texting or emailing someone, and this could be you know, for business purposes or just in your personal correspondence, you got to be careful what emojis you use. They find that using negative emojis in messages produces a negative perception of the sender regardless of their true intent. Now, what do they mean by negative emojis? Well, uh, anything that refers to somebody being in a negative mood or if you're trying to convey irony or sarcasm, those are the ones that are most often misinterpreted. They say any reference to negativity will drive how people interpret your emotional state when you are sending your message. And many texts or emails are difficult. It's difficult to convey irony or sarcasm in that format. So they say, don't think that emojis are just a cute little thing that you add in a text message and it has no consequences in your interaction. They, in fact, have a large consequence and a strong impact on how your message will be received and interpreted. Keep that in mind. And now to our ongoing Keeping the Faith series this morning. Now, one of the biggest challenges for many Christians, uh, many uh, in people of faith, uh, whatever the faith uh, may be, uh, is seeing God's faithfulness in the shadow of grief, when we experience loss, we often question God's benevolence, uh, his, his plan uh, for our lives. And no one is immune from these thoughts. A pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, wants to continue his late wife's legacy and explain how he navigated that loss as he continued on as a widower, not only to spread the gospel, but also to raise their four daughters. Correspondent John Clemens reports this morning, Keeping the Faith. Winter Daniel Pitts was 38 and had accomplished so much, but then death came suddenly as Pastor Jonathan Pitts was called from the hospital's waiting room. When Winter passed away and she was really sudden, they took her to the emergency room and they told me, hey, you might want to come in and say goodbye. We, we don't have a heartbeat anymore. And so I went in and the first thing I did, my natural response was to sing in her ear like I did at our wedding and like I did many times when she was sad or upset or scared. Um, so my natural recourse was to sing. And in that moment, I sang, um, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out a praise, pour out a praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out a praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. He has now authored a book about her legacy entitled My Winter Season, that explains her life purpose, even at the age of 38. The reality is I definitely think people die before their time, and obviously a lot of that's based on choices we make. Uh, in Winter's case, it wasn't, though. And the thing that I can take solace in with her is that she did serve the purposes that God put in front of her. You know, Winter was a 38-year-old that had these four daughters, these four beautiful daughters, and Based on the life of her four daughters, she created this magazine called For Girls Like You. That magazine would turn into her publishing devotionals and coloring books and other resources. And so when she died, she had accomplished so much more in 38 years than most people accomplish in 78 years. Pastor Jonathan Pitts knew he had to be strong for his daughters. 
things are well. My girls, the biggest thing I've had to do is walk with my girls through this. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is walk with my girls through this. But somehow, some way, they are amazingly resilient girls, and they've even um, been okay through my lack of perfection and uh, my, my complete humanity as a dad walking through this. My Winter Season is a book that'll take the reader through all the stages of grieving for Pastor Jonathan Pitts. I would say the first six months, I tried my best to not grieve because I knew I had to just show up for my girls. The next year and a couple of months, I grieved really heavily and I feel like I had just embraced the reality of where I was and began to accept where I was, which began to you know, create all kinds of emotions inside of me. And honestly, um, you know, it was after about a little more than a year, or so almost two years in that I started to feel like a whole man again. And obviously still miss winter, obviously still miss the life that I had, um, but I trust the Lord. Usually the best person to define grief is someone who is living it. I would say grief in general is just this realization of losing something that you expected to have longer. Could be a person, could be a job, could be a thing. Like you expect one thing and you end up with something different. And the process of reconciling with that is grief. And so I think regardless of what your loss is, you can identify with somebody else that's experienced a loss. And obviously the closer your loss is to somebody else's, if you lose a spouse or you lose a child, you probably have a better opportunity to identify with them and a better opportunity to comfort them. You know, the Bible says um, that we can comfort those with the same comfort we've received. Pastor Jonathan Pitts writes in My Winter Season about the fear he felt of not being able to ever again protect his wife. The earliest moments I remember were were kind of fear, like this fear of like, I can't protect her. I mean, I even think, I remember the the night I was in the hospital with her and me having to leave and knowing that her body was going to a morgue and feeling like for the first time in my life, I couldn't protect my wife. If God took her, then God can protect her. And if God took her, she's no longer my bride, but she's his. As a man of faith, He knew this was not a time to be angry at God. It was a time for gratitude. Yeah, we were married 15 years and 27 days. So the fact that we made it 15 years, I was like, I'm grateful for that. We had a marriage book that we literally turned in the final edited manuscript the day she died. I was thankful for that. And I felt like God was reminding me or showing me like I'm in control. Like I know this doesn't seem right, but I'm in control. And for every other grief stage, when you look at the stages of grief, every other one I've dealt with, denial and, you know, all the different things. But anger was definitely the last and the, and the least, um, least present, even when it was there. Instead, Pastor Jonathan Pitts discovered a faith that was stronger. I had this debate in my head, this back and forth between fear and concern and then God's perspective. And so I'd go back and forth and back and forth. And by God's grace, I've been able to err on the side of truth and err on the side of um, what actually is the only way you can move forward with any level of hope, which is faith. Yeah, that's kind of where I've, where I've landed. But yeah, there's a lot of like a lot of distraught moments and a lot of back and forth in my head as I, as I argued with my own mind and my own soul. Here's how to get in touch with Pastor Jonathan Pitts, author of the book, My Winter Season. Yeah, they can find My Winter Season wherever books are sold, but they can also find me at jonathanpitts.net, and they can find Winter's Resources, her magazine, and really more about her life, legacy, and ministry at forgirlslikeyou.com. This is John Clemens reporting. What an incredible story, and so timely because so many people have experienced loss in our world today. There is hope in the strength of others in this case, seeing God's faithfulness in the shadow of grief. We've got the link up at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net for more information. Keeping the faith this morning. So a new title to add to your reading list this morning, Early Thursday, A War, A Hurricane, A Miracle. And author Linda S. Cunningham is with us now. And 
Linda, two things that make for a great story, war and natural disasters, and you have them both here. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, It's post-World War II, and it was in 1957 that Hurricane Audrey hit Cameron, Louisiana, South, which is southwest Louisiana, mm-hmm. and it came up to Lake Charles. And I was in Lake Charles as a child at that time, and uh, it was devastating. Over 400 people were killed in uh, drownings mm. from Cameron. Yeah. So, so you draw on uh, your recollection and your experience there to create this fictionalized memoir of a, a character named Walt Lacour. He's the central uh, character, and the as you said, the two defining points uh, in his story involve World War II, tail end of World War II, and uh, Hurricane Audrey uh, from 1957. There was a lot going on here. Give us a kind of a synopsis of the story. It's a, a memoir, a fictional, fictionalized memoir, and he's telling his story. So he survives the storm, but he uh, tells the story of his life, and he has a caustic relationship with his father. And then when the storm hits, um, things don't go well for him, and he ends up in a tree and survived, you know, clinging for his life. Mm. And uh, then he has a deep, dark secret and he and he fails to uh do something that was just so necessary and he fails and it haunts him for the rest of his life and he has post-traumatic stress syndrome is what we'd call it today back then they didn't call it that right um anyway my father was director of civil defense during that time and i saw all the coroner's pictures I heard all the stories. So a lot of the stories in this book are real stories. They really happen to people. And, um, uh, but the story is very well layered. Yeah. Well, and with subplots. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I was going to mention. Uh, it, it's a, a complex storyline. As we mentioned, this uh, happens. Uh, he goes through the hurricane at a very young age. And then uh, later on in the story, uh, he is uh, college age. And you get a number of uh, flashbacks. Some of it is told uh, in flashbacks. And it, my first thought in reading about the book, and I have not read the book itself, but in reading about the book is how am I going to keep all of this straight? What was that a challenge uh, for you when you were writing the book, constructing the story in such a way that the reader doesn't kind of get lost in all of it? Uh, no, it comes very naturally as you read it. I, I visualize, I'm a very visual writer and I visualized it as a movie and I saw it in my mind as mm. I was writing it. And so I had these different layers in, and it's like holding, uh, gathering balloons that are floating, and you're grabbing this mm. string and grabbing this string, and you, in the end, you have to bring them all together. You can't let one storyline not have a resolution. So um, at any rate, he, uh, I, I did a lot of research on this, and it's not only historical with the Hurricane of Audrey, but we also uh, bring in the German prisoners of war into the story as a backstory for the mother 
Uh, they were, and this is a true story. There were German POWs in Louisiana mm-hmm. because all of the men went off to war, uh, to war, and uh, no, there was no one to uh, take care of the rice fields or the sugarcane fields. So they sent the POWs back to Louisiana in these minimum security camps. They these were not the hardcore Nazis. These were just right. German citizens who were drafted, and so they. Um, they work the fields. And so uh, there is a paternity question here for Walt. And he's Mm. trying to find his identity and life and resolution from the haunting of of his failure. Obviously, uh, in reading the story, uh, you know, you're imparting a, a good deal of history because, as you said, uh, the, a lot of the story, uh, the components of the story are gleaned from, from actual happenings, actual historical fact, although, like we said, this is a, a fictionalized memoir. Uh, aside from, you know, kind of imparting that history that probably uh, some people are, are not real familiar with what is the larger message uh here what is the the big takeaway uh for readers i think in the end um you know every human is valuable and can experience transformation from the negatives of life and uh we are the miracle and we don't recognize it and i wrote about the uh, leaf uh, this oak leaf this is a minor little thing but it was it turned out to be very important he's drowning and he has this inc- incredible ability to focus on the webbing thoroughfare of the leaf and and he thinks to himself, he says, I marveled at the intricacy of a single oak leaf with its webbing thoroughfare of veins. I remembered that I had the sense that I had been a witness to miracles like the leaf, but did not see them because of the swirling debris of my life. It was a great sin. And so in the end, he realized, realizes that if the leaf is a miracle, then what am I? And so um, anyone who is a victim of any kind should realize that we are not alone, number one. And when negative things happen, we can learn from them and evolve as human beings. And in the end, this story is uh, a story of of the power of forgiveness and the capacity to love against all odds. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like uh, in the final analysis, in the on the final page, uh, it is really a redemptive story above all else. Yes, absolutely it is. The book is called Early Thursday, A War, a, Me- a Hurricane, a Miracle. Linda S. Cunningham is the uh, author. And do you have a website in conjunction with the book that uh, we can guide folks to? I have a Facebook page. Oh, okay. Uh, Early th- Linda S. Cunningham. I also have a um, YouTube trailer that is wonderful. And you can find that on YouTube look for Linda S. Cunningham. There are a lot of Linda Cunninghams out there, so I put that. uh, But look for Linda S. Cunningham, and you can get it at bookbaby.com. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, all the various venues. We we will link up to it on our webpage as well, so folks can find it there. Uh, Linda, thanks very much for uh, taking the time uh, for us this morning, and certainly best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Police in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, got the uh, call about a uh, bank robbery, very unusual bank robbery. Uh, in this case, uh, a, a bank uh, was uh, held up by a woman in a motorized wheelchair. <laughs> now, I don't know whether this is uh, technically, a, it says motorized wheelchair, but I'm, I'm suspecting, was this a motorized wheelchair or was it uh, one of those mobility scooters that you see people in any event, not your usual uh, something. You, police say the woman showed up to the region's bank branch to discuss an account, but then got into an argument with a teller and things escalated from there. She eventually threatened to kill everyone in the bank and announced that she was robbing the place. Police say she was given some cash and then scooted on out of the bank. <laughs> she, it did not take police very long to catch up with her. Number one, because she was in a motorized wheelchair. And number two, because the bank was just blocks from police headquarters. <laughs> so, clearly not a well-planned crime. There were no injuries reported. She was taken into custody without incident a short time later. Uh, elsewhere in the broken news uh, this morning, you remember the uh, story we had a couple of days ago about the... Uh, frosted flakes that were seized at what airport was that? Was that in Detroit where they, or was it somewhere else anyway, where, uh, like several pounds of frosted flakes were cereal were confiscated because the frosting was actually cocaine. Well, here's another, uh, odd drug related story. The Seattle police department says a woman purchased a, a kit, uh, to crochet, animal hats at a Sierra, Seattle area thrift store. They want to do a nice thing, crochet some uh, warm hats uh, for people in need there in the Seattle area. So she orders this crochet kit, uh, and when she opened the kit, she found a heavy, suspicious-looking item encased in yellow rubber with 100% written on the outside. Uh, police uh, said that it was giving off an odd odor, the woman called 911, and the cops took possession of the suspicious package. They later confirmed it contained uh, one kilo of 100% cocaine. <laughs> cocaine and crocheting. Not something you would normally... Two things you would normally not go together, I guess. Um, some of the other odd and unusual lighter side of the news here. Residents of Manitoba, Canada, apparently have had enough of the winter and it's starting to get to them. The City of Winnipeg Complaints Department uh, on Facebook recently uh, shared images of uh, snowmen and snowwomen uh, within the city uh, in a series of uh, <clears throat> suggestive positions. <laughs> including a pair found engaging in a public uh, display of affection uh, of a certain type on a bench near the Winnipeg City Hall. <laughs> they're, they're creating sexually explicit snowmen and snowwomen in Manitoba, Canada. 
The uh, Facebook post reads, Please stop making these suggestive snow sculptures at City Hall. We have camera footage of the persons involved, and police will be investigating. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just people have been cooped up in Manitoba too long. (laughs) Don't want to give anybody any ideas, but that's funny. Uh, Speaking of inappropriate behavior, three California kids are reportedly getting kicked out of their Catholic school because the the folks at the school have found out what mom is doing for a living. Crystal and Chris Jackson say Sacramento's Sacred Heart Parish School gave them notice Sunday night after other parents raised concerns about mom's modeling on OnlyFans.com which is an adult membership-based site. Crystal and her husband, Chris, uh, make $150,000 a month from their posts, uh, but the school decided that that was inappropriate. So the kids are not going to be allowed to go to school there anymore. you got to be careful. Your career choice can influence your kids. The sins of the parents are uh, borne by the children in this case. And finally, in the broken news this morning, veterinarians at the University of Florida say they had to perform surgery on a 10-foot crocodile recently to remove a shoe that it had swallowed. Now, the uh, crocodile did not, you know, bite off the shoe from a person. I mean, it didn't, uh, the crocodile didn't eat the person attached to the shoe. In this case, the nearly 350-pound crocodile had been spotted swallowing the shoe after it had fallen off uh, from a person who was ziplining at uh, St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park. So there's ziplining, the shoe fell off, and the alligator ate the shoe. The uh, problem is the shoe was made of a synthetic material that would have blocked up the uh, crocodile's intestines and eventually uh, could have killed the crocodile. After an overnight stay... The 34-year-old croc returned home to the park to recuperate. Who knew? I didn't know that that was that was a thing. Crocs can't eat crocs. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. Uh, brought to you as a public service of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. WFIN says thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen around the clock on computer, smartphone, or tablet. Start your day with Chris Oaks and good mornings. And stay with us all day long. You also get CBS Sports Radio plus all of our locally originated sports programming. Listen live whenever you like at 1330 WFIN, 95.5 FM, and at WFIN.com. Where you can also grab our free mobile apps for iOS or Android. Want to talk about what's going on in the month of March at the Finley Hancock County Public Library? Director Sarah Clevidence is uh, with us on the line. And the month of March, it's all about community read, right, Sarah? Good morning. Yes, March is community read month. And so, for those who are not familiar, talk a little bit about the uh, concept of uh, community read and, and what it's all about. Sure. So Community Read was initially started by the Community Foundation, and then back in 2012, they passed it over to the library. Uh, the idea behind Community Read is that there is one book selected that the entire community can read and enjoy and discuss. Um, and we try to spend the, the month of March exploring the different themes of that book in our programs. 
And then to make sure it's accessible for all ages, we also select some books uh, for our youth read program so that different ages of children can explore those same themes, but uh, in more age-appropriate books. Right, yeah. Um, And and there uh, have been a number of terrific books uh, over the years that have been featured. Uh, This year's community read selection is what? Well, this year is unusual. Um, Last year, you, you may remember, we had this little thing in March called the pandemic starting. (laughs) Uh, So we had to reschedule our visit with Lisa Wingate, who was planned to come to discuss uh, her book um, before we were yours uh, Mm -hmm. late March last year. And so we have rescheduled her. She is coming via zoom later this month. And she'll be discussing both before we were yours. And uh, since last March, she has also published the book of lost friends. Um, Those two books, uh, explore a lot of similar themes through fiction, so uh, we decided to combine those into a two-for-one community read. I this year. see. So we have actually two books uh, this year for the community read. Uh, before we were yours uh, from from last year. If you didn't get a chance to to read that last year, uh, you can pick that up. And then the new one is what's the title of the new one again? The Book of Lost Friends. The Book of Lost Friends. So tell us a little bit about these books. Sure. So uh, both recount uh, sort of dark periods in our, our country's history, uh, and, and both books go back and forth between that historical period and modern times. So before we were yours, um, it's telling the story of the Tennessee Children's Home. Mm-hmm. It, um, that was in Memphis in the 1920s to the 1950s. Uh, this uh, orphanage ran a black market baby business in those years. So they essentially stole uh, children and babies from uh, poor families and then sold them to the highest bidder to well-to-do families. Hmm. Uh, It's the the story that... uh you know, you hear about on, on, on TV uh, crime shows and you think, oh, that could never happen. But it actually did happen uh, it, fairly recently in our history. And then the other book, uh, you said, explores similar themes, but uh, in a different way. It does. So uh, the Book of Lost Friends, um, the historical period is post-Civil War South. Uh, and that is about uh, three young women who are, are searching for family admit in the midst of that um, very troubling time in our history. And they are, um, one of them is a, uh, an individual who collects the stories of uh, slaves who are searching for their family that they've mm. been separated from and mm. to this book of lost friends. Um, so that was actually, the, the lost friends ads were a, a real part of our history. And one of Lisa Wingate's readers had introduced her to um, an, an archive of those ads. And she built uh, the Book of Lost Friends around that story. Hmm. Sounds really fascinating. And uh, as you mentioned, you have a special event uh, with the uh, author. And again, that is generally part of the Community Read program is that invite the author in uh, to talk about the books and the, the themes of the book and, and so on with the community. Going to be doing that on Zoom, as you mentioned, later on in the month of March. But in between now and then, you have a number of other programs uh, centered around this book as well. We do. We have book discussions for both of those titles, and we're also doing one uh, as part of our new perspectives discussion series over bef- before and after, which uh, Lisa Wingate co-wrote with Judy Christie. That book is real life stories of hmm. uh, 
children who had been victims of the Tennessee Children's Home, uh, some of whom didn't even know that was part of their history until after uh, Before We Were Yours came out. And uh, Judge Kristen Johnson is going to co-lead that book discussion for us. We're very excited to have her perspective in there as well. So uh, these are events that anyone in the community can uh, take part in. And obviously, uh, if you're reading the book, you'll probably get much more out of it. Uh, But these will be uh, fascinating discussions one way or the other. And I'm assuming that most, if not all of these, will be held virtually, right? All of our programs are still happening virtually, yes. Okay. And, and you can find all that information on our website, finleylibrary.org. And for the, any of these programs, is pre-registration uh, necessary for uh, any of these or all of these? Yes, we do ask that, that folks pre-register so we can send you the Zoom link okay. to these events. Um, that, and that includes Lisa Wingate's visit on March 25th. Okay. Um, and uh, and that, again, that information will be up on the, on the website. Absolutely, as well as all the many other programs that we're doing for Community Read. Now, as you mentioned, there are also books for younger readers that uh, really uh, encounter these same themes, as you said, at a more age-appropriate level. What are those uh, books? Sure. So we have companion books for for each title. So the ones that go with Before We Were Yours, uh, the picture book is A Home for Leo by Vin Vogel. It's just uh, an adorable story, and I think my favorite out of the whole selection of, of youth read books this year. Mm-hmm. We have Just Right Family by Sylvia Lopez. Uh, that one's for grades uh, kindergarten through grade two. The Three Pennies by Melanie Crowder uh, for grades three through five. And then for grades six through eight, Counting by Sevens uh, by Holly Goldberg Sloan. And then to go with the Book of Lost Friends, we have Where Are You From?, by Yamil Mendez, and that one will be our story walk book in March. Mm. For, for grades three through five, we have Someplace More Than Others by Renee Watson. And then for grades six through eight, we have Clean Getaway by Nick Stone. Okay, and all of those books are, are available at the library as well, right? Absolutely are, yes. So, uh, again, those are your reading selections for the month of March during the Community Read Program. You mentioned uh, the one that will be part of the uh, Story Walk. Uh, it, remind folks what that is all about for those who are not familiar what the Story Walk is, real quickly. Yeah, Story Walk is at Riverside Park. Uh, so, you know, as we're coming up to spring weather, it's a great opportunity to get out with your family. Just take a short little walk starting at the bandstand, and you can follow the path of Story Walk. And once you've reached the end of, of the Story Walk, you'll have read a complete story and had a nice little outside visit with your family. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, the, it starts right at the bandshell and then kind of weaves around uh, to where the uh, weaves around the path where the uh, Waterfalls Pavilion is, right? That's general, right around in that area where the yeah. story concludes. So uh, really a neat uh, program, great opportunity for you to get out uh, this spring and, uh, again, participate in community read uh, with the entire family we've got the link up at our webpage for more information about community read at goodmornings.net courtesy of the uh, finley library's uh, website sarah clevidence director of the finley hancock county public library with us this morning sarah thanks very much thank you and that is our program for today want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the show remember you can get more information about all of the topics you hear about each day on the podcast at our webpage, go to goodmornings.net. We are always on 24-7 on the World Wide Web. Going up tomorrow morning on the program is all that pandemic screen time giving you a migraine or is it just in your head? See what we did there? 
We'll tell you what to do when remote work and remote learning becomes too much to bear. Until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.